Crazy Horse and his Lakota braves pushed back Custer's men until they were surrounded on a hill outside the village, whereupon every last man was killed. Seabag describes Custer's body being found with an arrow through his penis. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Aspects of History with me, Oliver Webb Carter. Now I chose to release this podcast after my chat with Simon Seabag Montefiore all about his family history of the world. You might remember it from a few weeks ago, but if you haven't got round to it yet, I'd recommend you go back and have a listen. But it got me thinking, if I were to do a top 10 of families, and who doesn't love top 10s, who would I pick? And as I started thinking about it more, I realised there's an opportunity to look at parts of global history that I love and am fascinated by, and we haven't really covered in the podcast so far. I'll pick a few members for each family and talk briefly about interesting features of their lives, and hopefully some unknown aspects too. Alongside, I'm going to recommend a book to read, in addition to Simon Seabag Montefiore's fantastic The World of Family History, which I highly recommend. These books will be either history or historical fiction. Links will be in the show notes. It's just me, no guests, so I do hope you can tolerate that. In the meantime, coming up on the pod, I've got Peter Hughes and I talking about the writing of history today, politics behind it, intolerance of other people's views, decolonization. It's all there. And with me taking an optimistic and pragmatic view and Peter, I suspect, giving a slightly more pessimistic tone. But who knows? We'll see. On our website at the moment, we've got a few blog posts that might be of interest to you, including one by a friend of the show, Giles Milton, on the seizing of Adolf Eichmann from his hideout in Argentina by the Mossad, and my piece on the recent trial of Alexander the Great that took place in the UK Supreme Court recently. Two giants of the British legal establishment thrashed it out over whether Alexander was guilty of war crimes, and I was there to report it. And I have to admit, I'm not an impartial observer, as you'll find out later in the pod. Finally, we've put up the Aspects of History Books of the Year, and so I've put a link in the show notes there too. You can look through all the historians and writers that have contributed to the magazine, podcasts and website, and have a look at what they've recommended. My picks are in there too, with four friends of the show selected. Anyway, let's get on with the top 10 families of world history. If you can, please do subscribe, but in the meantime, I'll hand you over to me and the top 10. At 10, the Khans. The great Genghis Khan conquered much of Northwest Asia in the 13th century and reached as far as Eastern Europe. But did you know that booze was a huge part of their lives? Two of Genghis Khan's sons died of alcoholism. Now, to give you an indication of the sort of chaps we're dealing with here and the approach to fighting rival tribes, I'll quote Genghis. Vengeance is taken, blessed by Tengri, who was their chief god. We empty their chests break off a slice of their liver, end the male line, and rape all women that survive. So let's keep that in mind as we talk about the Khans. We start with Temujin, who, as a young man, was a bit of a rogue, but the Khans had fallen on hard times and his wife was kidnapped by a rival clan. After he had been talent-spotted by a local chieftain, he raided his enemies to find her and get her back. How romantic. As Temujin grew in stature, he was called the Fierce, a.k.a. Genghis, as he united various Mongol tribes. 
When dispatching familial rivals to his position, he would kill them using the royal way. No blood was spilt. Instead, the victim, usually a brother, had his back broken. Genghis, using the might of his mobile equine horde, steadily moved west. In Afghanistan and Iran, when resisted by the local population, he had hundreds of thousands executed, and the women and children enslaved. Those slaves were then sent ahead of the Mongol army as human shields. The Mongols certainly weren't woke. A final quote from Genghis, The greatest pleasure for a man is to crush a rebel and defeat an enemy, destroy him, taking everything he possesses, seize his married women and make them weep, ride his fine, beautiful horses and fornicate with his beautiful wives and daughters and possess them completely. Now Genghis died after falling from his horse and we move to his grandson, Kublai Khan, founder of Beijing. He was a tolerant ruler, allowing freedom of worship. However, the empire built by his grandfather was now splintering. Kublai would grant an audience to Marco Polo and establish trade with the Venetians. His attempt at invading Japan was an unmitigated disaster, but Vietnam was only marginally more successful. These defeats took their toll and his decline through illness ended with his death in the year 1300 AD. The Borgias at number nine. The Borgias emerged from the Spanish region of Aragon and Rodrigo Borgia became Pope Alexander VI in 1492. It was under his papacy that his children gained influential positions, but also all sorts of going on that would make a hooker blush. The Chestnut Banquet is one such party that attracts most attention, and I recommend you have a look into that further. Alexander's eldest son, Giovanni, became a duke. Cesare, a cardinal, and his daughter Lucrezia, well, a little bit more about her in a minute. Giovanni came to a sticky end when he was murdered, with Cesare, his brother, involved. Cesare's modus operandi of rising to the top was murder, which makes it likely he slit his own brother's throat. Machiavelli knew him and gave him the motto that it is better to be feared than loved. Not content with killing his brother, he then moved on to his brother-in-law, the Duke of Bicelli, who was related to Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and had him assassinated in the Vatican. Cesare did get his comeuppance. Suffering terribly from syphilis, his nose fell off and he had to wear a mask. As for Lucretia Borgia, history seems to have been rather harsh on her. Though she married three times, her first husband was shunted aside to assist her father's changing alliances. Her second was murdered by Cesare and she had many children with her third, dying in childbirth at the age of 39. Recommended book, The Borgias, by Paul Strathern. At number eight, the Medici. The most infamous of families from the early modern period are perhaps best personified by the matriarch Catherine de Medici. Born in 1519, she became the Queen of France in 1547 and was married to Henri II. A strident Catholic, she was mother to three French kings, Francis II, who married Mary Queen of Scots but died in youth, Charles IX and Henry III. Catherine had created a totally dysfunctional household involving incest, rape, violence and orgies. Margot, her daughter who married Henri of Navarre, was the subject of the film La Reine Margot, mentioned in my top ten historical movies from a few weeks back. This was the ultimate red wedding. Catherine had arranged the marriage in an attempt to halt the constant civil wars in France between Protestant and Catholic. Within days of the marriage between the Catholic Margot and the Protestant Henri of Navarre, Catherine unleashed 
Catholic hit squads against the Huguenots, Calvinist Protestants, in what became known as the St. Bartholomew Days Massacre. It was August 1572, as the Huguenots arrived in Paris for the marriage. Catherine plotted with her sons. Margot was certainly a reluctant bribe. Seabag describes the nuptials brilliantly in his book. Regardless, an orgy of blood began as Catholics killed Protestants indiscriminately and men, women and children were slain. It's difficult to know how many died, but in Paris, approximately 3,000 and 10,000 in France as a whole, and that's probably about the right number. Catherine's son blamed her for instigating the slaughter, and she was certainly one of those responsible, but Charles IX was too. Charles died to be succeeded by his brother Henri III, who himself was assassinated and succeeded by none other than Henri of Navarre, the Protestant, though he'd been forced to convert to Catholicism at the point of a sword. Not a difficult choice to make. Henri IV, as he was, put an end to the bloody French wars of religion. Recommended book? The Medici by Paul Strathern again. At seven, it's the Ptolemies. Starting with Ptolemy I, this Greco-Egyptian dynasty ruled Egypt from the death of Alexander the Great all the way to the Emperor Augustus. The first Ptolemy, nicknamed Sota, which was Greek for saviour, was one of Alexander's generals and was with him throughout many of his conquests. Rumoured to be the illegitimate son of Philip II, Alexander's father, after Alexander's death, in a stunning move, he stole the body and the great commander then lay in Alexandria. Here, Ptolemy founded the Great Library and wrote a history of Alexander's campaigns, which was used by Arian and is a key source today. We then skip along a few generations until we land at the great Cleopatra, the most famous woman of antiquity. She beguiled Julius Caesar in supporting her bid for power, which was a success and she ruled intermittently alongside various brothers, whom she dealt with either in battle or more intimately by poisoning. Her affair with Caesar is legendary, and in the wake of his murder on the Ides of March, and after trying and failing to have her son Caesarian, also known as Ptolemy XV, declared as heir, she returned to Egypt where she hooked up with Mark Antony. Their attempts to defeat Octavian, who later became the Emperor Augustus and ruled the entire Mediterranean, failed, and she committed suicide, but not before she had given birth to Cleopatra Cellini II, who became ruler of much of North Africa during the reign of Augustus. She grew up in Augustus's household and was co-ruler with her husband, Juba II, and many more descendants of the Ptolemy dynasty continued after her death. Recommended book is Cleopatra's Daughter, just out from Jane Draycott. At number six, the Alcmeonidae. Now there are some who think the Greeks are overrated, but not me. Who the bloody hell are the Alcmeonidae though, I hear you ask? Well, the name of this elite Athenian family may not be familiar, but some of its members will be. They are supposedly descended from Nestor, the king of Pylos in Greek mythology. He was one of Jason's Argonauts and an important advisor during the Trojan War, and he appears in the Odyssey. The first prominent member of the Alcmeonidae is Megacles, who was around in the late 7th century BC and was exiled from Athens for his role in the rather cowardly killing of suppliants, people who had submitted to Athenian authority on the promise of mercy. For this, the family line was cursed, although in all honesty it was a political move in the internal Athenian politics and with Spartan interference. The next family member worth talking about is Cleisthenes, an Athelian politician for the 6th century BC 
and whose main role was reforming Athenian democracy. Ostracism, the practice of exiling a politician who's got too big for their boots, well, that's down to Cleisthenes. And it was used against many big names in Athens, including our next member of the Alcmiotidae, Xanthippus. He was the father of Pericles and was a leading general during the fight against Persia in 480 to 479 BC, which secured democracy from the tyranny of Persian rule and therefore barbaric rule, as the Athenians would say. Next up is Pericles, master politician, the man behind the Acropolis building program that can still be seen today, which includes the Parthenon marbles. Again, we're still talking about this today. In fact, there was a recent debate where a friend of the show put forward a powerful argument in favour of their return to Athens. Link in the show notes. Pericles was the foremost leader of Athens during the Golden Age, which saw huge advances in democracy, architecture, culture and, of course, the development of the Athenian Empire. He died of the plague in 429 BC, but by then his adopted son, Alcibiades, was rising fast. A brilliant orator in general, and winner of the Olympic Games in the chariot race, Alcibiades is one of the most attractive figures of ancient Greece. He was divisive, and so his enemies conspired during his absence in Sicily, and he defected to Sparta, Athens' sworn enemy. He then had an affair with one of the king of Sparta's wives, the Spartans had two kings, and so had to flee again. He then returned to Athens in triumph, won a succession of battles against the Spartans, before being exiled again and then was finally assassinated by the Persians, probably at the behest of Sparta. Book to read, Nemesis by David Stuttard. So we're into the top five now, and as a recap, at number 10 we've got the Khans, that's Genghis and Kubla, the, the Borgias get number nine, at number eight it's the Medici, number seven the Ptolemies, and number six the Alcmionidae. At number five, it's the Achaemenids, the family that built the Persian Empire before Alexander took it from them, though he would argue he renewed it. The greatest of them all was Cyrus. Ruling in the mid-6th century BC, he expanded from Iran, conquering the Median Empire, Bactria and Sogdia, and then he turned his attention to Lydia in Asia Minor. Croesus was its ruler and known to be the wealthiest man in the world. He himself had considered attacking Persia. Croesus consulted the oracle of Delphi and asked what would happen should he attack Cyrus. The oracle replied, a great empire will fall. And so it did, for when Cyrus and Croesus clashed, the Lydian empire fell, and Cyrus now ruled from the Aegean Sea to the mountains of the Hindu Kush, including the great city of Babylon. Cyrus became known as Cyrus the Great. The next ruler of the Alchemanid that we discuss is Darius, who expanded the empire to Egypt and the Indus Valley, making it the largest empire the world had seen. He then demanded the Greek city-states provide him with earth and water to prove their loyalty to him. But when they refused, he invaded Attica, looking to conquer Athens. At the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, his army was routed and Darius fled back to Persia. He soon died, but his son Xerxes was determined to avenge the humiliation, and so built a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont between Turkey and Greece, Europe and Asia, an incredible feat of ancient engineering, allowing him to launch a massive invasion. You'll know all about the great defeats he suffered in 480 and 479 BC at Thermopylae, Artemisium, Salamis and Plataea. Xerxes did manage to sack Athens, but soon after he lost his fleet in the Straits of Salamis. 
Xerxes embarked on a major building program in Persepolis, which was later burned by Alexander. See my account of the trial of Alexander. From Xerxes, who was assassinated, we skip a few generations down to Artaxerxes II, who became king of kings in 404 BC. Now, pretty soon he had to deal with an extremely irritating revolt led by his brother, Cyrus the Younger. Now, this Cyrus was determined to become king, and so hired 10,000 Greek mercenaries to fight for him, among them the Greek soldier and philosopher Xenophon. Artaxerxes and Cyrus met at the Battle of Canaxa in modern-day Iraq in 401 BC, when Cyrus's army defeated his elder brothers. But there was one slight hitch. Cyrus died, thereby making the result irrelevant and now 10,000 Greeks had to find their way home. Xenophon writes a brilliant account of that journey back to Greece. The Achaemenids continued until 431 BC in the Battle of Galgamela, when Darius III was defeated by Alexander, who took on the mantle of King of Kings and ruler of the Persian Empire. Book to read, Cyrus the Great by Matt Waters. Number four, the Sioux. In the long and tragic story of the Native Americans, happy endings don't exist. But there are two men who took the fight to the ruthless US government and fought to preserve their culture against the American hunger for more land. The great Union general from the Civil War, William Tecumseh Sherman, said, The more Indians we kill this year, the less we'll have to kill next. The number of atrocities against Native Americans are too numerous to list. Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, one a warrior, the other the chief of the Sioux, joined forces against their common enemy. Crazy Horse was a fearsome warrior who was famous among the Sioux during the battles against other tribes of the Great Plains. After the Civil War, and as Western expansion continued apace, Crazy Horse was involved in victories over the US Army at Platter Bridge in 1865, and the following year at the Battle of the Hundred in the Hand, for which he was appointed shirt wearer, which is another name for leader. He was inspired to take the fight to the US by visions from Sitting Bull envisaging great victories over American soldiers. In 1876, the Great Sioux War broke out in the Black Hills in Dakota and Wyoming. Years earlier, the US government had signed a treaty with the Sioux granting them the territory. However, these hills contained gold, and so prospectors and the 7th Cavalry descended. Under the command of George Custer, the flamboyant but highly aggressive Civil War veteran and notorious Native American killer, all the ingredients were there for a clash. Firstly, Crazy Horse defeated Custer's commanding officer, General Crook, and then, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, or the Battle of the Greasy Grass, as the Native Americans call it, he inflicted probably the most famous and crushing blow against the US Army post the Civil War. Custer divided his forces and attacked a Native American village on the Little Bighorn River, but he had stirred a hornet's nest, and Crazy Horse and his Lakota braves pushed back Custer's men until they were surrounded on a hill outside the village, whereupon every last man was killed. Seabag describes Custer's body being found with an arrow through his penis. Whilst this was a great victory for the Sioux, in the long run they had incurred the wrath of the US government, and the tribes making up the wider Sioux splintered as they accepted reservation life and a steady source of food. Crazy Horse was killed a year later while surrendering, and Sitting Bull, after taking part in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, was killed by Indian agency policemen when attempting an arrest in 1890. Book to read, Flashman and the Redskins, by George MacDonald Fraser. We're into the top three now, and number three, 
the Zulus. I've called this dynasty the Zulus for ease of use, and the people were derived from Zulu Kamalandela, who founded them in the 18th century. The Zulus of Southern Africa, we're going to start with Shaka Zulu, who gained control in 1816 and developed the kingdom into a militaristic society, and one that he ruled with an iron grip. His military reforms created a regimental system so as to deploy, on the battlefield, the bull's horn tactic. The idea being you have regiments that make up each horn which envelope their enemy, and then the bull's head drives through the centre, so making up the name. It was highly effective, and their weapons of spear and cudgel were brutally efficient. The society he created, and I've briefly mentioned this before, can be seen as similar to the Spartans, as young fighting males were limited from interacting with females, and punishments were harsh. According to their beliefs, a vanquished enemy's stomach was cut open so as to allow the spirit to ascend to heaven. More on that later. Shaka had successfully conquered tribes adjacent to his lands, but the Portuguese, British and Afrikaners limited how far the Zulu nation could expand. Shaka was also rather paranoid and was said to have had around 7,000 people killed, suspecting they were disloyal, and may well have murdered his own mother. All this behaviour led to his own assassination at the hands of half-brothers, and one of them, Dingani, became king. We skip a few generations and arrive at King Kachweo, who was the nephew of Shaka. The British, in an unprovoked invasion led by Lord Chelmsford, moved into Zululand and divided their forces. Part of the split force set up camp at the mountain of Izandwana, where they failed to protect the encampment, fatally underestimating their Zulu foe. In a brilliant move, employing that bull's horn tactic, the Zulus enveloped the British force and routed it completely. The British then suffered further defeats, but the Zulu war is probably best remembered for the heroic, and it was heroic by both belligerents, for the heroic stand at Rourke's Drift, made famous by Michael Caine and Stanley Baker. Quechuao had the opportunity to invade the British-held South Africa, but instead hoped for a peace treaty. At no point had he behaved aggressively against the British, and the Zulu War was an outrageous act by Chelmsford and his partner in crime, the High Commissioner Bartle Frere. Their motivation was newly found diamond mines. Unfortunately, the British could not accept these defeats, and so re-invaded, during which Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, he of that great dynasty, was killed in a Zulu ambush, and the Bonapartes were no more. Quechueo was eventually defeated at the Battle of Ulundi via the superior technology of the Gatling gun, and he was forced into exile, but the Zulus had certainly made their mark. An honourable mention should go to Prince Butelezi, born in 1928. He actually played his great-grandfather in the 1964 film Zulu. A key player in the new South Africa post-apartheid and Nelson Mandela's release in 1990, Butelezi was Minister for Home Affairs for 10 years from 1994. Book to read, The Zulu War by Saul David. Number two. Of course, we had to include the Kennedys, the most famous of whom is, of course, President Jack Kennedy. But he was destined for the highest office in the land the moment his elder brother, Joseph Jr., was killed in the Second World War. Their father, Joseph Sr., was determined to gain the White House for his family, having risen to a US ambassador in London at the start of the war. He was a controversial figure, he was described by a British MP as a rich man, untrained in diplomacy, unlearned in history and politics, who was a great publicity seeker, and who apparently is ambitious to be the first Catholic president of the US. 
Now, does that description remind you of anyone? John F. Kennedy won one of the closest U.S. elections ever in 1960 against the then Vice President Richard Nixon. In the first televised debate, Kennedy appeared relaxed, looked great, spoke to the camera. Nixon sweated and appeared shifty. Kennedy won the election by only 100,000 votes. Now, we've heard from Max Hastings about how well JFK did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Seabag has briefly talked about the Kennedy assassination. I'm going to be covering that in an upcoming bonus podcast. I'd like to mention how much he was a terrible womaniser. In reading Seabag's book, one moment stands out. JFK visited a famous brothel in Paris run by Madame Claude. She is famous for the quote, There are two things that people will always pay for, food and sex. And I wasn't any good at cooking. Well, anyway, Jack Kennedy asked Madame Claude for a girl who looked, to quote him, like Jackie, but hot. Make of that what you will. Kennedy's brother, Robert, started off as a political bruiser working for Senator Joseph McCarthy on his paranoid quest to find communists within US institutions. He then went up against the Teamsters boss, Jimmy Hoffa, as the lead counsel for the Senate in identifying corruption, earning the undying hatred of the Mafia. During his brother's presidency, he was Jack's foremost advisor and again was a kind of studs-up politician, tough as old boots. But then after his brother's death and during the Johnson administration, he left government, became a US senator and then travelled poverty-stricken parts of America, which does seem to have changed him. He was inspired to run for president in 1968, but was assassinated, supposedly by Sirhan Sirhan. So good they named him twice. Now I've looked into this assassination, and to quote Agent Mulder of the X-Files, I want to believe, but in this case, I'm really not sure there is a conspiracy. The last thing RFK said before he died, by the way, was, is everybody okay? The third Kennedy son to have a run at the White House, but who fell very early on, was Teddy Kennedy. Another handsome young senator from the East Coast, he was finished by a tragic accident that he was responsible for. Whilst driving a young woman, Mary Jo Kopechny, likely having had a few, he drove into a river. He escaped the car, but she drowned. His less than honourable behaviour resulted in the end of his political ambitions and he was convicted of leaving the scene of an accident. Not the nine o'clock news satirised this event with an impression of Ted Kennedy in their comedy news show. Griff Reese jones who plays Kennedy, is asked what his biggest life lesson is and he replies, I learned a great lesson from Chappaquiddick, which is don't drive over narrow bridges when you're pissed out of your mind. Book to read... Abyss, the Cuban Missile Crisis, by Max Hastings. Now we've come to it, the number one family. It's the Argyads. And I cannot deny I had to put my favourite family with my favourite historical figure at number one. In the verdant lands of Macedonia, the dynasty that produced Alexander the Great steadily grew their power. But it's so much more than just Alexander. Indeed, there's another Alexander also. We kick off with his ancestor, Alexander I of Macedon, who was king during the Greco-Persian Wars. Now, I've always found him quite an amusing character. So whilst all the other Greeks are fighting for their lives, he cheerfully picked sides, whichever one that served him. During Persia's two invasions of Greece, first in 490 BC and later in 480 BC, Alexander I pledged loyalty to Darius and then Xerxes. 
Macedon had been a long-running vassal of the Persian Empire, but he was canny, and so provided the Greeks with intelligence on Persian movements. After the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC, when the Persians were retreating back through northern Greece to Asia Minor, Alexander attacked the remnants and won a great victory and independence from Persia. We then jump 150 years or so and go to Philip II, Alexander's father. Without his unifying the Greek city-states and his reforms of the Macedonian army, and in particular the phalanx, it is doubtful that Alexander would have been as successful. And we know that this fact bugged him. The phalanx was a formation of men, each employing the sarissa, a six-metre-long spear or pike, that was almost impregnable during Philip and Alexander's era. Philip was an extraordinary man who married seven times. His fourth wife was Olympias, and in her Philip had met his match. A princess of Molossia, part of northwest Greece, she was fiercely protective of her son and jealous of Philip's roving eye. In 336 BC, Philip was assassinated. Now, for those of you who listened to Seabag's interview, there's always been controversy about this event. The official story is that Philip was the victim of internal Macedonian sexual politics when the assassin, named Pausanias, was outraged Philip had ignored his pleas for justice after a violent sexual assault by one of Philip's aides. What is entirely possible is that Olympias and even Alexander orchestrated the murder so that Alexander's succession was assured. The reason for doubt was that Philip had married several times since, was still a young man and had just had a baby with his latest young wife, Eurydice. It's important to remember that within the Argiad family, murder amongst claimants to the throne was a frequent occurrence. Anyway, we'll never know for sure, and Alexander became king of Macedon. Now, I'm not going to recite his many great achievements now, as plenty will know all about them, except to cover his death in Babylon in 323 BC, having conquered much of the known world. There are plenty of theories about what happened, was it disease or assassination? The likelihood is that his body, after many wounds and years of combat, and weakened by bouts of excessive alcohol consumption, succumbed to typhoid and malaria in a city that sat on the banks of the Euphrates and which frequently flooded the surrounding lands. But as I've already mentioned, Argiad King's premature ending was not unusual, although Alexander took about two weeks to die. A high-risk strategy if you're the poisoner. As Alexander was close to his death, the Macedonian army filed past his bedside, paying tribute to the leader they adored, and a flicker of recognition would appear on his face as he recognised comrades. Alexander had a son, Alexander IV, who reigned as a teenager, but both he and his mother, Roxana, a Sogdian princess, were murdered by the dastardly Cassander, one of Alexander's contemporaries, thus ending the Argiad line. This nasty piece of work had also killed Olympias and was himself part of a significant dynasty. However, he died of a particularly painful disease, which means the gods were watching. Book recommendation is Alexander the Great by Robin Lane Fox. That's it. That's my top 10. I hope you enjoyed them. Links to everything I've mentioned are in the show notes. Coming up, I've got Peter Hughes talking about writing history in these turbulent times and Lawrence Friedman on the politics of command in conflicts post-1945. In the meantime, thank you and good night.